Good evening. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Chelsea Follett. I'm managing editor of humanprogress.org here at the Cato Institute and a policy analyst in the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. A web project, um, uh, the, the humanprogress.org is a web project that documents with data how innovation is helping to transform our lives for the better. And so the topic of tonight's discussion is very much relevant to what we do. I want to thank everyone in attendance, including online. For those here in person, at this time, please take a moment to silence your phones and other devices. Our event hashtag tonight is Spaceflight Revolution, so please use that on your social media posts. I'm delighted to host this book forum for Dr. Robert Zubrin. His new work is entitled The Case for Space, How the Revolution in Spaceflight Opens Up a Future of Limitless Possibility. This book tells the amazing, true story of how hard-driving, entrepreneurial ventures such as SpaceX and Blue Origin have accomplished what was previously thought of only as a capability of major power governments, space exploration. He contends that private sector competition will bring down the cost of space launches and in-space technology and shows how those trends are already underway. As space exploration increasingly becomes the domain of private companies and private citizens, humanity may be on the verge of a revolution in spaceflight. Robert makes the case in great technological detail for how humanity might further space exploration, but he also makes the case for why humanity should venture into space. Not just for the knowledge that we might gain and for the challenge, but to ensure our survival and protect our freedom and our future. In his book, Robert writes, there is nothing more valuable than freedom. He opines that space colonies like the city-states of the ancient Greek islands would allow a multitude of diverse societies to flourish and that the opening up of a vast new frontier is naturally conducive to individual freedom. This book lays out a compelling vision for the future of humanity in space. So without further ado, let me introduce our distinguished speakers. Dr. Robert Zubrin is the president of the Mars Society, an international organization dedicated to furthering the exploration and eventual settlement of Mars. And he is also the president of Pioneer Astronautics, an aerospace research and development company. For many years, he worked as a senior engineer for Lockheed Martin Astronautics, and he has testified before Congress about the future of space exploration. He is the author of many critically acclaimed books, including The Case for Mars. His writing has also appeared in publications including The New York Times, The Washington Post, Scientific American, and many others. He has appeared on major media including CNN, C-SPAN, BBC, ABC, NBC, and NPR, and the Discovery Channel. He holds a master's degree in aeronautics and astronautics and a PhD in nuclear engineering from the University of Washington. You can follow him on Twitter at Robert underscore Zubrin, Z-U-B-R-I-N. We are also pleased to have with us tonight Baron Soka. Baron is the president of Tech Freedom, a think tank focused on technology policy. Previously, he was a senior fellow and the director of the Center for Internet Freedom at the Progress and Freedom Foundation. Before that, 
He practiced law, advising clients on regulations affecting the internet and telecommunications industries. Soka received his bachelor's degree in economics from Duke University and his Juris Doctor from the University of Virginia School of Law, where he served as submissions editor of the Virginia Journal of Law and Technology. He is admitted to practice law in the District of Columbia, and you can follow him on Twitter at Baron Soka, that is B-E-R-I-N-S-Z-O-K-A. Robert will now present on his book for around 30 minutes, and then Baron will comment on it for another 15 minutes or so, and we will then open up to questions from all of you in the audience, including our online audience. And afterwards, there will be a drinks reception, and you will have the opportunity to purchase this wonderful book in the lobby and perhaps get it signed by the author. What's going on? Um, perhaps. Um, well, thank you for that very kind introduction, and thanks to all of you for turning out to hear what I have to say, and even more for the cause to which you are uh, dedicated more broadly, the cause of human liberty. Um, it's the most important cause there is. So I'm going to talk about, yes, the revolution in spaceflight, the future of limitless possibility that it could um, open, and the case of why this is absolutely necessary, not merely desirable, but necessary. And that's a lot to talk about in half an hour. I won't be able to cover it all. But yes, fortunately, I do. Ha I have written a book on the subject. And you buy them, I'll sign them. No perhaps about it. Um, OK. So first, uh, the revolution. OK. This, something that many of you may have seen online, uh, this is February 2018. This is the launch and landing of the Falcon Heavy. Now, uh, anyone who saw this no doubt thought it was cool. But if you don't know the background to this, you don't know how cool this really was. OK, because in 2010, President Obama put together a blue ribbon committee uh, headed up by my old boss, Norm Augustine, the CEO of Lockheed Martin, to evaluate whether the Bush Moon Initiative was possible within acceptable uh, cost limits. And they came to the conclusion that it was not because, according to them, development of a heavy lift vehicle would take at least 12 years and cost at least, wait for it, $36 billion. Now, Musk did it in six years at a cost of less than $1 billion. And to cap it all, the thing is three quarters reusable. So this was just a shot heard around the world. This is Sputnik, OK? And, uh, and, and what he had done was not merely introduce a very desirable aerospace system. But he had proven a principle, as Chelsea said, that it is possible for a well-led entrepreneurial team to do things in a third the time at less than a tenth the cost that, that, uh, of things that previously it was thought that only the governments of major powers could do. And not only that, do things that they could not do at all, despite 60 years of trying. Okay? And with that, he has set off an international space race. Now, there, it had already been um, ginned up by his earlier successes. You have Blue Origin, the Jeff Bezos company, the Virgin Galactic, the Richard Branson company. But even companies led not by billionaires with discretionary cash in order to 
become immortal through historic achievement, uh, but even by working engineers with no more means than most middle class people who've managed to get investment. Okay, so this is Rocket Lab, New Zealand company, founded by a working engineer, mobilized $300 million in investment, and they have reached orbit. Okay, this is not science fiction flakes. This is real stuff. It's really happening. New Zealand has reached orbit, not through its government. It has no space program, but through the initiative of private citizen and investors. Okay, and, uh, and because this race has been unleashed, this is, is, is going to be self-driving. First of all, Musk himself is, is remarkable. Okay, e even as he has reduce the cost of space launch by a factor of five. That is, the cost of space launch went down a lot from Sputnik through the Apollo landing as we became competent in, in the various space flight technologies and pretty much developed a whole bag of tricks during that 12 years of the, uh, of the initial space race. Okay, and that was done by the governments, no, no two ways about it. Um, but they were serious, they got the job done, and they reduced the price of space launch from you know, millions of dollars a kilogram to $10,000 a kilogram. Uh, but there it stayed for 40 years until 2009, flatlined. But between 2009 and now, in the last 10 years, it's fallen from 10,000 a kilogram to 2,000 a kilogram. And e but Musk is, is even trying to make that obsolete. Okay, he's working on a new uh, uh, propulsion, uh, a launch system called Starship, which we'll talk about a little, um, which will be fully reusable and will knock down the cost of space launch by another factor of three. So we're headed towards $700 a kilogram or even $500 a kilogram. And the cheaper launch is, the more launches there are going to be. That's elementary economics. It's cheaper, more people will do it. Last year, there were about 100 satellite launches in the whole world. SpaceX got 24 of them. They got a quarter of the launch. This is a one medium size, actually small launch company compared to most launch companies. Got a quarter of the world market and really the majority of the world market that was open for bids because the, most of the rest was China or Russia or something. You couldn't compete for it at all. Um, now, because of the lowering of launch cost, I think very quickly we're going to see 200, 300 satellite launches a year. That in turn will contribute to further lowering of, of launch costs um, as the uh, cost of launches spread out over more launches. But also it will contribute to the lowering of spacecraft costs because they will be being produced in more numbers. And furthermore, the designers of spacecraft will be less conservative. Um, for the past half century, the, the prevailing wisdom among spacecraft designers is don't use anything that hasn't been used before. Because the launch is so expensive, you don't want to risk your whole spacecraft for some 20% improvement in some system. Okay? So it's like the person you know, who won't see any movies he hasn't seen before. You, know, you saw The Wizard of Oz when you were kids, good movie. Okay? Play it safe from there on, nothing else. Um, it, it's not the way to get a broad um, uh, education. Uh, and so, but now you're going to have this. So then there is an, another revolution that has been going on, uh, really driven by developments outside the space community, but, uh, but now starting to 
been taken advantage of, which is in spacecraft miniaturization. We're now seeing micro spacecraft, 10 kilogram spacecraft that can do things that previously it took a, a thousand kilogram spacecraft to do. And not only are they much smaller and lighter and therefore cheaper to launch, they're also cheaper to build. They're million dollar, two million dollar spacecraft instead of hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's another way that will facilitate the opening of space. Now, I do believe though that if we're going to make space travel comparable to air travel, okay, you know, air travel, like from here to Los Angeles, maybe $5 a kilogram, not $500 a kilogram, okay? Um, how do we get there? You can't do it with 300 satellite launches a year or something like that. But reusable launch vehicles opens up a new market altogether, which is surface-to-surface -surface flight on Earth. You know, for the past 3,000 years, people have made money on the ocean. And some have made money actually taking wealth from the ocean, for instance, by fishing or sponging or something. But far more wealth has been uh, developed uh, on the ocean by using the ocean as a global dro low drag medium for commerce. The ocean connects every port to every port on Earth with a lower drag medium than is available on land in general. And that's where the serious money in, in, in uh, maritime activity has been. Well, space is a zero drag medium collecting every point to every point. And you can travel from anywhere on Earth to every other place on Earth in less than an hour if you go through space. This, of course, is unthinkable with expendable vehicles, um, but it, it becomes uh, rational with, uh, uh, conceivable anyway, with reusable vehicles. And uh, I've run the numbers. Uh, now, of course, we won't see this everywhere to everywhere. It probably is going to have to be from ports so you can launch offshore and land offshore so not have all the noise and of rockets in the city. But um, the Starship, if it was used as a uh, transport of this kind, um, I've worked the business case out, and they probably could make this thing work with a ticket price, Los Angeles to Sydney, of uh, $20,000. Now, that is more than I've ever paid for an airplane ticket. Okay, But that is the price of a first-class ticket, Los Angeles to Sydney, right now. And all those people get for that money is a tablecloth, a free drink, and... Um, well, that's what they get. And the, uh, um, whereas this, you're getting there in less than an hour instead of in 15, and you're getting half an hour zero gravity and the stars of space out your window. Okay, that could be. All right, and now, instead of hundreds of flights per year, we're talking hundreds of flights every day. Okay. Now, and as they become more common, uh, well, if you get a bigger market like this, then you start making space craft uh, uh, um, components at costs of other things. You know, a, a rocket engine is less complex than your car. But your car costs $20,000 or something. A rocket engine, you're not going to get for less than millions. Um, why? Because one is a mass production item and the other isn't. Um, and, but if you start producing rocket engines not in ones or twos but in thousands, tens of thousands, then they become cheaper, and all the other flight systems, same thing. Now, and this will open up the um, way for orbital commerce. You know, things like orbital research labs, even orbital manufacturing, which were demonstrated in principle on the space station, but could not remotely be commercial because of the tremendous cost of the space shuttle and also the bureaucracy of the space station. But now if you're talking about cutting the cost of access to orbit by 
in order of magnitude, and furthermore, th that means that there'll be private space stations which won't put up four years of red tape before you can fly the, your experiment on it and so forth. Uh, you're gonna start seeing that kind of stuff. So I think we can see lots of orbital activity. But what about getting out there? Now, the problem here is this, okay, uh, and I'll explain what I think the business case is for settlement of Mars in a few minutes. But there is a threshold to be crossed before we can uh, have uh, economically uh, self-sustaining colonies on, on Mars or the moon or something. And, and the government's gonna have to be involved in this. And, uh, and as you may have heard, uh, the Trump administration claims it wants to land people on the moon by 2024. Um, and I actually think it's good that they set a deadline on that. That's the only thing that makes it meaningful. I don't think they're going to achieve that, okay, because they're not approaching it in a way that, 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 that is efficient or effective. And I'll, I'll, I'll make it real simple. NASA uh, actually has two very distinct modes of operation. They have a purpose-driven mode and a vendor-driven mode, okay? Purpose-driven mode, you spend money to do things. In the vendor-driven mode, you do things in order to spend money. Okay? Now, the, uh, the Apollo program was purpose-driven. It wasn't science-driven, but it was certainly purpose-driven. We were going to astonish the world with what free people could do, uh, and there was no bunk allowed. Okay? Uh, these NASA science program has got some problems here and there, but overall it, it was and has remained purpose-driven, and that's why their accomplishments have been epic with the Hubble Space Telescope and the rovers on Mars and Cassini and Saturn, all this stuff. I mean, wow. Okay, uh, people are going to be talking about these missions 500 years from now. But the human spaceflight program since the end of the Apollo has not been purpose-driven, and it's become a captive of its vendors, and it has existed to serve its vendors, and so it does things in the most inefficient way possible. Quite literally. And, and, and so now here you have NASA's plan for how they're going to land people on the moon. And, and you'll notice the headline, surely you're joking, Mr. Bridenstine. Okay, because this plan requires four launches for every lunar mission. It requires five different spacecraft and six rendezvous. Okay, this plan is designed to give a piece of the action to as many people as possible. Okay, which is insanity simply from an engineering point of view. Okay, because if any one of these 15 things goes wrong, you lose the whole mission. And, um, and it means that you have basically no capability at the moon. Um, NASA has to not simply add on the space entrepreneurs as additional vendors to be satisfied with some action. It has to make use of their capabilities to reduce the cost and complexity of, of, of the mission. Okay, and I, in the book, I describe my plan for the moon, known as Moon Direct. And so I, you know, here's the chart. It looks a lot simpler, doesn't it? Um, I, I don't really have time right now to go through the mission modes, but suffice to say, we only use heavy lift at the beginning. We, as rapidly as possible, develop um, the production of oxygen on the moon, which you can. There's water on the moon. can be broken down to produce hydrogen and oxygen. And once you have that, you don't need heavy lift anymore for the missions, and you can do repeat lunar missions with a single launch of a medium lift launch vehicle. Okay, and that's what you would do if you actually wanted to go and conduct activity on the moon at minimum cost instead of maximum cost. Okay, now that means that only one kid gets a part in the school play. Okay, so, you know, that's a problem, but uh, it, it's not a problem if you are purpose-driven instead of vendor-driven. Okay, the, uh, and then Mars the same way. 
the Mars Direct Plan, which is described in great detail in my earlier book, The Case for Mars, and is described in one chapter in this book. You know, you could use something like the Starship to launch to Mars a Earth return vehicle. Musk says he's going to fly the whole Starship to Mars, refuel it there, fly it back. That puts the Starship out of action for three years. I would just fly it to Earth orbit and stage off of it uh, and send a smaller vehicle to Mars, which you refuel and it requires much less fuel to send it back. And then after that has made its fuel, you send the crew out in a HAB module and so on. Um, but uh, I, I'm not going to focus in this talk on so much on, on the engineering of this, but I'll be happy to answer questions. And I, I believe <clears throat> Mars actually is, is, is the real target here. Mars is uh, far richer <clears throat> in materials that can be turned into resources than the moon. It not only has much more plentiful water, it has carbon. The moon has none. We're carbon-based life forms. We're made of carbon. Everything we eat is made of carbon. I'm not going to eat this, but the, 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 everything we use is made of carbon and made with the help of carbon uh, you know, and, and nitrogen and all this other stuff. It, it, and, and here's the thing, OK? Um, I'll be uh, brief-ish on this. Okay, sure, we can do initial missions to Mars with uh, government money, and, and we can do use a lot less government money if we take advantage of the entrepreneurial revolution and our ingenuity in creating resources on Mars. Um, but even so, they'll have to import something. What's the export? Okay, um, inventions. Um, a Mars colony will be a group of technologically adept people in a frontier environment where they're going to be forced to innovate and free to innovate. There's going to be nothing in shorter supply on Mars than human labor time. And so there'll be tremendous uh, driver, as there was in frontier America and colonial America, for labor-saving machinery. And in this case, that goes beyond simply reapers and things of this sort to uh, robotics, artificial intelligence, the, the modern-day uh, uh, analog uh, of the labor-saving machinery, uh, Yankee ingenuity, that made the development of America possible. Um, Ultra-productive, genetically modified crops, because they're going to be using greenhouse agriculture. They won't have acres and acres to grow things in. And these sorts of inventions, whether they're in robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, genetically modified organisms, will be licensable as patents on Earth. And there's your money for your imports. Um, so uh, as soon as the cost of space transportation has been reduced low enough, and as soon as we have uh, used the initial Mars base uh, to develop enough technologies to uh, you know, make rocket fuel on Mars, oxygen, extract water, grow crops, make plastic, steel, fabrics, wires, tubes, habitation structures, as soon as we can make all the heavy things on Mars, and, and the cost of what we do have to send goes down, then this sort of business plan starts to work. Okay. I talk about the potential of asteroid mining. Um, you probably have heard about that. I'll talk about another one, though, the outer solar system. Okay. Why would anyone want to settle the outer solar system? Well, the atmospheres of the outer solar system are rich in a substance that does not exist on Earth at all. Uh, a little bit of it does exist on the moon. It's called helium-3. What's helium-3? It's, it's an isotope of helium that's the ideal fuel for fusion reactors. Now, OK, fusion, oh, oh that's like reusable space launch. Yeah, precisely. Um, Musk is not interested in fusion. But 
by the example that he set of the power of entrepreneurial activity, he has started an entrepreneurial race in fusion technology. Because what investors did is they looked at what he did, and they looked at fusion, which of course has been going almost nowhere for the past 30 years, and said, maybe the problem here is not fundamentally technological. Maybe it's institutional. Maybe it's the wrong kind of organization doing it. And I have to tell you a story, because I actually worked in the fusion program a bit in the 80s. I was at Los Alamos. And I can remember one group lunch that we had. And the group leader looked at us, and he said, you know, when fusion power is finally developed, it's not going to be at a place like Los Alamos or Livermore. It's going to be a couple of crackpots working in a garage. And we all laughed, because you know fusion's hard, and it's complicated, and crackpots in garage, no. But a startup in a warehouse, yes. And here, that's T uh, Tri-Alpha Energy Fusion, California-based. They've gotten $500 million in investment, and they're moving fast. That, that $500 million is more than the US government's fusion budget. And these people are not talking about taking 30 years to build a reactor and, and start it, like the ITER program. They, they, you know, in, in, well, in business, and especially uh, high tech, cost is people times time. And so you try to go fast, and they're all going fast. Um, now, what's so important about fusion? Uh, can't we light light bulbs without fusion? Yeah, you can. It's another way to light light bulbs. That's an important thing. But yes, you could light light bulbs with waterfalls and windmills and natural gas and coal and solar panels and what have you. But fusion is not just an additional way to light light bulbs. It's a new kind of energy. And uh, it can do things that waterfalls can't do, like fusion rockets. And fusion rockets can, uh, in principle, get to exhaust velocity of about 7% the speed of light. And a rocket can generally be built to get up to about twice its exhaust velocity. So you're talking about spacecraft that can achieve 10% the speed of light, which means not only rapid travel around the solar system, it's a, 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 a marginal capability for interstellar flight. And that's what we're opening up here. Okay? And then, yes, terraforming planets. That's Mars. Not the Mars that is. It's the Mars that will be. Because we're life. It's the nature of life to take barren environments and transform them into those that are friendly for the development and propagation of life. So if we go to Mars, we'll bring it to life. Okay? Um, and we should. Um, now, but I do want to spend a little bit of time here talking not about the how and the what, but the why. Okay, and in the book, as um, Chelsea said, I, I devote a considerable section. Yes, for the knowledge, for our survival, uh, for our, uh, the challenge, for our freedom, and for our future. Okay, the knowledge is the part that you do hear about from NASA. They're acquiring incredible knowledge with the space telescopes and the landers on Mars. And, you know, historically, most of our knowledge of physics actually has come from astronomy. And the reason for that is the universe is the biggest lab there is. And... Uh, you know, so sure. Um, and, you know, there's Sarah Seeger um, presenting the results of the Kepler Space Telescope mission just a year ago. Uh, one in five stars harbors an Earth-sized planet. It's inhabitable zone. That's incredible. And, and there it is. Um, and one could go on in that vein, but actually that's the one that NASA has made its point about. Uh, and they also talk a little bit about this. You know, the, the thing you need to know about the Earth is it's in space. And everything in space is moving around. And they're crashing into each other from time to time. And these crashes can be inconvenient to life on these planets. And of course, we've had a number of famous mass extinctions on the Earth. But did you know 
that last December 18th, we had a 150 kiloton impact over the Bering Sea. Kapow. Uh, and uh, that's 10 times the Hiroshima bomb. This stuff is flying around. And as Carl Sagan used to say, all species either become spacefaring or extinct. And it, we go into space, we can take control of this flight traffic. I'm not in sympathy at all with the argument that we need to go into space so that when the Earth is destroyed, there'll be survivors somewhere else. I find that argument repugnant. We're not going into space to desert the Earth. We're going to space to protect the Earth. We become spacefaring. We can control our environment, which is space. Okay. Okay. Uh, Challenge, yes. Uh, here is a graph of science graduates in the US, 1960 to 1970. The Apollo years, it triples, then it flatlines as soon as that program ended. Because youth loves adventure, a bold space program makes space, science the great adventure, and the scientists, engineers, doctors, technological entrepreneurs, inventors were produced by millions as a result of Apollo, and we're, we're getting the benefit of that today. But I want to talk about an issue which I know is very dear to Chelsea's heart and very dear to mine, uh, and which I address at great length in, in one of my other books called Merchants of Despair. And the merchants of despair are the people who say there are limited resources. Okay, um, and it is, would be a cause for despair, and it's a cause for destruction. I mean, what is the greatest threat that humanity faces today? Is it climate change? Is it overpopulation, resource exhaustion, or even asteroid impact? Were any of those things the cause of the great disasters of the 20th century? No. The great disasters of the 20th century were caused by one thing, which was bad ideas. And in particular, one bad idea, which is that there isn't enough to go around. And so we have to kill each other to get it. I mean, here you go. You see that book, Germany and the Next War? 1912, Friedrich von Bernhardi, chief intellectual of the German general staff, writes that book. It's an international bestseller. The original's in German. Um, and he says, look, there's only so much here. Who's going to get Eurasia? It's going to be us or the Russians. We're going to have to fight it out with them sooner or later, better sooner than later before they industrialize. So let's go to war as soon as we can. And so the two years later, they take advantage of the assassination of the Archduke to let loose hell on a uh, a Europe which had never been doing better, um, and, and Germany which had never been doing better. And then 1939, Hitler, even more hysterically, the laws of existence require uninterrupted killing so that the better may live. German needs living space. Total nonsense. Germany today is significantly smaller than the Third Reich. It has a larger population, but a much higher standard of living. Why? because of the advance of technology and invention, some of which was developed by Germans, but the large majority by people from all over the world, including notably people they were trying to exterminate. And the, the okay, so it was just, pure, it was all in their heads, okay? We are not threatened by there being too many people. We are threatened by people who think there are too many people, okay? And even today, okay, there you go. Uh, I happen to know, and I'm sure people here know them too, there are people in this town in positions of responsibility in the national security establishment who believe that war with China is inevitable. 
Why? Because there's over a billion of them, and if they have a standard of living like ours, and they all have cars, there won't be enough oil in the world. And you can bet there are people in Beijing looking at the same issue from the other side of the chessboard who think exactly the same thing from the other side's point of view. And if these sorts of ideas are allowed to prevail, there will be war, and there'll be far more destruction than the two previous world wars, because we have much more effective weaponry. Now, this idea is nonsensical, okay? Just to, you know, take a look. Okay, here's your reputation of Malthus. Okay, here's the world population. Here's GDP per capita. Okay, directly contrary to Malthus, as the population of the world has gone up, the standard of living has gone up. Okay, it's not an accident, it's causal. Okay, because w what causes standard of living? Productivity. What causes productivity? Technology. The more people, the more inventors, and the more inventions are cumulative. And that's why the standard of living has gone up with population. And you know, you know, uh, I, I, there's probably a lot of people here who can remember the Club of Rome, 1972, are going to run out of everything by the year 2000, right? And, and they knew because they had a computer so they could make an infallible prediction. Okay. okay, 2000 comes around, we didn't run out of anything. In fact, all these raw materials they thought would be rarer were more cheap and, and larger reserves relative to current use than was the case in 1972. Okay, but okay, sure, okay, they were wrong. But here's the punchline to that. A few years after that, they held a reunion, which are, you, the proceedings are available in a book called uh, The Limits to Growth Revisited. And what they said is, a lot of people think that we were wrong because our predictions did not come true. Okay, but we were actually right. We have to be right because this is a finite planet and there's only so much to go around. And so even though it didn't come out on the time that we predicted, it must run out sooner or later. It must, it must, it must. Okay, now they're wrong. Okay, there's actually an infinite amount of resources on Earth. Okay, uh, because resource availability is not a function of stuff. It's how fast it moves. Um, but the, 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 but trying to prove that to people is like trying to prove to a mathematically uneducated person that there's an infinite number of points in a line segment. Unless you know math, okay, in, with some sophistication, it seems self-evident that a line segment is a finite thing. There's only a certain number of points can be between here and here, okay? But anyone can see, anyone can accept the idea that there's an infinite number of points in a line that goes infinitely in all, both directions. That's easy to see. So the point here is not that we're going to get oil from Mars. We're not, okay? The, the, we're, we'll get inventions from Mars. We'll get a new creative partner in, in the pr uh, project of advancing human civilization. But what we'll get by doing this is proof. Proof that humans are not consumers, we are creators. Okay, that there's no such thing as a natural resource, there's just resourceful people, okay? Uh, and, and that it's not true that there isn't s just so much to go around because the Earth comes with an infinite sky. And that's the case for space. Thank you. So I'd be delighted to, well, no, we don't get questions yet. He gets to say some stuff, and then Thanks. Uh, it's really an honor to be here. Um, Dr. Zubrin's book, uh, The Case for Mars, uh, really inspired me in a very profound way when I read it in 2004. If you uh, can remember that moment, 
Uh, Bert Rutan had just won the X Prize for becoming the first person to send a reusable vehicle with a person in it into space twice in two weeks. And that, that was a real moment, just, just like uh, the Sputnik moment that, uh, that Dr. Zubin described that has just happened with SpaceX. And I was a young uh, law clerk at that point. I just graduated law school, and I read a, a number of books, but the one that moved me most was The Case for Mars. It inspired me. Uh, a lot of the book is really about the power of ideas to inspire people, and I think you'll all get that when you read the book, which I would highly recommend that you do. Um, but what I would tell you from that experience, uh, from getting so inspired by uh, Dr. Zubrin's book, by what was happening at that point, uh, is really two things. Uh, one, uh, prophecy is, uh, is one thing, but, but timing's quite another. Uh, so uh, my advice to all of you who are interested in this field is um, probably you shouldn't quit your day jobs. You probably shouldn't try to do what I tried to do, which was to uh, decide I was going to build my legal career uh, in space law and start an institute for space law and policy, ISLAP, the cleverest think tank name you've never heard of, because it, it didn't get off the ground. Because as it turned out, there really wasn't a market for that. I have done space work, uh, space law work over the last 15 years, but it's been very, very slow going. Uh, and that's really the nature of this field. Um, Dr. Zuber may be right about everything he says. Uh, but I don't think anybody in this room, including him, can predict how long any of those things will take. And so when he says, for instance, that um, one of the most inspiring passages of the book, that all this can soon become attainable. A new force is broken loose. A new tree is growing. We have only to water it, foster it, clear its way upward, and make sure that no one does anything to kill it. In some sense, I do think that's true. And I, I find that vision very compelling. I, I do consider him uh, a prophet. Um, but as I say, uh, I, I quibble with the word soon. We really have no idea how long that's going to take. And more importantly, we really don't know what it's going to look like. Uh, he describes a number of things that, that could be plausible scenarios, could be plausible business models. Those things could happen. But if I have gotten to learn one thing about technology policy over the last 15 years of, of working in the field, it's that uh, the most fundamental thing for us to understand is just how little we can imagine about the future. The future really is an unknowable place. And there will be an infinite number of challenges to overcome. We don't know how long it will take people to do those things. And we don't know critically which things will actually make money. Because at the end of the day, there are grand institutional forces at work here. Governments will do what they're going to do. There are real national security issues at stake. And the national security of the United States is going to drive this country to invest in certain things, and that's going to play an important role in, in what the settlement of the space frontier looks like. But at the end of the day, the promise that he describes, you can think of that as um, think of that as macroeconomics. Yes, there's a there's a new world that you could see from Spain in, in 1492, and there are all sorts of prophecies you could make about how that new world will be colonized or opened up or what that will look like. But nobody could possibly have imagined what it actually looked like. Because it wasn't one plan. It was a countless, endless array of plans, of, of iteration. And he knows that, right? He's, I'm not saying that he's trying to design a, a single top-down technocratic future. Uh, but he is an engineer. And that mentality is hard to break. And it pops up throughout the book. He's got particular plans that he's particularly excited about. And, they, and I hope that they come true. But I don't think that we're going to get to space in any sort of clear path. I don't think there is any bridge from here to there. There's not a single there. 
there, the settlement of the space frontier, the thing that I've been engaged uh, in my own way for much of the last 15 years through the Space Frontier Foundation, of which I was on the board and served as chairman, right? fundamentally at its best, I think is it really ought to be about, at the same time, excitement about what the future could look like, but at the same time, a kind of humility. And, and as he said, Julian Simon was right, the ultimate resource really is human ingenuity, and the resources of space are really only there for what we make of them. We'll see what, what happens of them. I just caution everyone in, in reading the book and in thinking about this, not to fall prey to the, um, the particular uh, obsession that people have with one way of doing something, the idea that Mars is our future and, and it's the terraforming of Mars that's gonna happen because it, it creates a kind of confirmation bias. If you start from that premise, you end up reasoning backwards. And, and this comes out across pretty clearly in certain parts of the book. And you've heard some of this tonight, that you know, Mars is a world of great possibility. I, I do believe you're right, that in the grand sense of history, the future of, of human civilization will in large part lie on that planet, just as it will on the asteroid belt. But the question of what is the business model, what are the economics that will actually make that sustainable, is, is a fundamentally impossible question to answer today. You can't simply say, well, people will, will figure things out and that will drive innovation and that will support the, the business model. In some sense, that may be true over the course of hundreds of years, sure. But what will actually sustain development step by step, quarter by quarter, as companies have to justify the decisions they're making is marginal cost and marginal revenue. It's the same economics that has driven our economy today and will always drive our economy, right? People have to close their business cases. And the challenges in doing that are, are, are really quite considerable. I'm a lawyer, I'm not an engineer. I don't have a degree in nuclear physics. Uh, I suspect no one else here does besides Dr. Zubrin. So I'm not gonna uh, get into the kinds of debates with him that you would hear at a space conference where people who are actually engineers or actually physicists would say, well, you might underestimate how, how serious the problem of radiation is to deal with or the effects of microgravity. That's, that's, there are other people who could give, those, give you those um, responses on those issues. I'll instead just talk about a few things that, that I know something about. I've talked a little bit about economics uh, it's a big part of, of what I do. Uh, the internet revolution is, I think, an important contrast to this. Right? The internet revolution is in many ways very similar. It is about settling uh, the electronic frontier. That's why we have the Electronic Frontier Foundation. That's why people think about cyberspace as a vast uncharted territory. But the, the single most important lesson to draw from that is that nobody could have imagined what the internet uh, of today looked like, would have looked like back in 1995 or 2000 or 2005 or even 2010, even 2015, it is constantly changing. And if I got up here today and told you, you know, the future is X, Y, and Z, and artificial intelligence is gonna do the following, I would of course be proven wrong, right? Now there are some constants that he can describe and he does very usefully, right? There are some important factors that really are just matters of physics and that do lend themselves to certain kinds of launch architecture and for those reasons, the book is, is incredibly worth reading. It's important to understand those things that we do understand about the future, what it takes to get outside the Earth's gravity well, why the, the moon is an easier base of operations than the Earth is, right? All those things are essentially based on constants of physics, right? Those are things that an engineer is, is, is eminently qualified to talk about. But when it comes to making predictions about what will actually close business cases, I'm not qualified to do that. He's not qualified to do that. We can 
do it notionally. It's useful to think about those things. But don't confuse those for predictions of what the future's actually really going to look like step by step. It's, it's inherently going to be messier than that. And, and so then we come to my area of expertise. So I'm a policy wonk. I'm a lawyer. I, I deal with what, what Congress does and how law works every day. And when I read a book like this, I inevitably see that the arguments, um, when an author attempts to, to bring things down to today and to what this audience in the present time can do, uh, the audience um, is encouraged, the readers are encouraged, to, to do things like supporting private space companies, right? Because they are going to face a lot of obstacles. And he's absolutely right. And it's really important and valuable for someone to tell a story as compelling as his. But prophecy plays an important role in inspiring people, inspiring people to go into careers, to, to, to as he points out, the, the number of people who got degrees in the hard sciences went through the roof after the Apollo project. People like me were inspired by the success of uh, Burt Rutan in 2004. People are being inspired today. And it's similarly important to inspire people to, to make their voices heard in our democratic process to, to defend companies that are facing regulatory obstacles. That, that's all very useful. But then it comes to the actual exact policy issues and what, what exactly is it we can do. Now, once again, I agree with him about his suggestions for the most part. Uh, he's absolutely right that the, the way that the government buys services today on a cost plus basis completely skews the way that procurement works. It skews the nature of the space economy. Changing that would make a big difference. I absolutely agree. It's not the silver bullet that's somehow going to radically instantly change the market. It will make a difference, an important difference on the margin. But that alone is not going to make private sector business cases close. Now, I'm not saying that this is all about markets. Governments have played an important role. The most important thing governments have done in the last few years has been being a good buyer of goods and services. Part of the reason that SpaceX has succeeded is the Obama administration had a policy of, of buying commercial crew and cargo transportation services to the International Space Station. That, that's a good example. And, and he's right that there are other ways that we could imagine those sorts of partnerships working. But I do want to inject a note of skepticism. COTS, the Commercial Orbital Transportation Service Procurement Program, was a fairly marginal program relative to NASA's overall budget. I don't think it's realistic to expect that NASA is going to fundamentally change into the kind of organization that we would like to see it be, because that's not what it was designed to do. NASA was designed to create jobs spread across as many congressional districts as possible. Right? This is just a political reality. We could want it to change, but that's not going to make it change overnight. So while government can play a role here in being uh, helpful, I think it's a mistake to expect too much from government. So similarly, yes, NASA buying uh, or having a better plan for how to get to the moon would make a difference. But fundamentally, my concern is if what we get is a repeat of the Apollo program, where we ultimately go and have what we in the space world call flags and footprints, we get excitement out of that. And that has some value. But what really matters is, is jump-starting a sustainable private sector presence, where people can make money on a regular basis. And he does describe some scenarios where that could happen. But some of those scenarios really involve some pretty significant assumptions about what might happen in the future. In the future. Fusion, uh, the kind of fusion that you would do with uh, helium-3 from the moon, 
eventually, I'm sure, will happen if people can solve problems of basic physics. But these are very difficult problems. And I, I think they're significantly more difficult problems than the problems that SpaceX faced in trying to lower launch costs. So to say that, that this is all going to happen once fusion is developed on Earth and it's somehow going to just spark a, a revolution that settles the space frontier, I think underestimates how difficult these problems are and how long it takes to, to solve them. But, but let me turn to, to law, and this is where I think I have the most to, to offer. Um, there is, as I said, there's a kind of confirmation bias in any sort of prophecy. People look for things that they think will, will make their um, prophecy come true. It might be fusion. It might be um, if we just go somewhere and life is very difficult, those challenges will inspire us to, to, to try harder. Innovation will come from that, and that will be what, what closes our business model. And that's, that's really what you see in him making the case uh, for Mars as an immediate matter. Um, but then he says another option is simply selling land. Just as during the settlement of the American West, undeveloped land can have speculative value based on its future prospects for development, with the highest prices obtained for parcels close to a settled base, transportation route, or actual or potential uh, power source, or otherwise rich in identifiable resources. This is a very common way of thinking among people in the space movement. I, I dare say that the vast majority of people who, like me, really want to see the space frontier opened, believe one version of this. This is They say, well, this is how we open the American West. And if we just did this, this would create the capital needed to invest in space. And, and that, that would be what opens the space frontier. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you for a few reasons uh, that's not going to happen. And it would be a bad idea if it did. So to start with, uh, this is clearly prohibited by the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. This is essentially the constitutional law of space, which prohibits territorial, territorial appropriation in space. Now, you might say, well, let's junk that. Let's just start something new. Let's pull out. It doesn't serve our interests. I actually think it does. And I think it's uh, really ironic that uh, libertarians tend to be the ones arguing that we should somehow uh, start over in space law. Uh, because what they're really arguing for is the extension of national sovereignty, of territorial uh, claims, and of the nation state system into space. Right? That's what the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 prevented. It's why we haven't seen uh, fights over uh, land on the moon or in other places, um, because the Outer Space Treaty recognizes that you can put all the little landers you want. Um, you have no rights once you do that other than to the safety and security of your facilities. Right? So what the Outer Space Treaty does recognize is the, the basis for the only property right that I think you fundamentally need in space, which is the right to non-interference. Right? That's the most fundamental sort of property. It means that if you're doing something, people can't interfere with you. Right? That, that's how you get, uh, uh, if you want to do mining rights, that's how you get security in your operations. That's very consistent with the Outer Space Treaty. Claiming vast swaths of territory and saying you're going to sell them off to the highest bidder uh, is, is, one, illegal today. Two, would require uh, extending the nation state system into space. And three, inevitably result in multiple countries claiming to do exactly the same thing. Now, if you think that that's going to generate enormous revenues because people are going to want to buy those parcels of land when multiple countries could essentially be selling the same systems, uh, I can tell you that I've been working in this field now for 15 years, and I've never seen any economic model that, that justifies any of that, other than people making just simple assumptions about what the value of land ought to be. So I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it would be a good idea if it did. And I could talk more about 
about this. But there's another area where this comes up. And here I, I'm potentially more in agreement, although this is an important uh, and, and su more subtle legal issue, uh, the issue of asteroid mining. So he has a chapter on, on Mars and another chapter on asteroid mining. There are companies today who are in the early stages of developing asteroid uh, mining technologies and who are planning to actually survey uh, potentially mineable asteroids throughout the solar system. And the question is, what are their legal rights? Well, I've already mentioned to you that the Outer Space Treaty already recognizes that if they're in operations on a current uh, uh, asteroid, they have very clear rights under the treaty, and the United States should defend those. And in fact, in 2015, Congress passed legislation to recognize their right to, to, to non-interference and to recognize their right to ownership of extracted resources. Right? That's a precedent that was set by the United States and the Russians extracting resources from the moon, bringing them back, gifting those resources, and selling them. Those are the basics of, of property rights. But there are some people who want to go further. They want some kind of mining claim system. And here, there's a really important distinction that lawyers would draw. Um, he, in one uh, passage of the book, says, with a stroke of a pen, a vibrant, privately funded space exploration effort could be brought into being, one that would use the daring and genius of the free market to rapidly bring the knowledge and benefits of the untapped resources of the solar system to humankind. And then what he describes is a mining patent system granted to those who've surveyed an asteroid with some degree of fidelity so that such claims would be tradable today on the basis of their future speculative worth and could be used to privately finance robotic uh, mining survey probes in the future and enforceable by the US um, system of uh, essentially not uh, recognizing uh, people who, who don't obey those systems and imposing punitive tariffs and so on. So um, it, there is a version of this that I actually would support and that I've called for in our work and we've urged Congress to do. Um, but there's a really important distinction that, that's um, to be drawn here. So there's ownership of the objects, there's non-interference rights, and then there are two very different kinds of mining claims. The one that I would support is the kind that we actually have in the United States Code today for the deep seabed. So no one, unless you're a really hardcore space lawyer or a, uh, a, lawyer, a law of the sea lawyer probably knows this, but in the 1970s, uh, when the United Nations was working towards the law of the sea treaty, the United States government, United States Senate passed legislation that created a system of the United States recognizing exclusive mining claims to the deep seabed floor, and importantly, a system to recognize other countries' systems of law and interlocking claims, so that uh, if Canada uh, licensed a particular country to mine a particular area of the seabed floor, the United States wouldn't do so and vice versa. Right? That system is on the books today. That This is never developed for essential economic reasons. The technology doesn't exist to make this uh, cost effective, but, but the system is there. Now, what this does not do is, I think, what he wants. It does not allow you to say, I've spotted a few useful objects, and I'm going to sell off those uh, in order to raise money. Uh, instead, it works like a traditional mining claim, where you identify uh, useful resources, and then you have a, 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 a series of milestones that you have to achieve in order to perfect your claim. And if you don't, you lose it. Now, that's the kind of system that I would call for in space. I don't think that that violates the Outer Space Treaty. But critically, for this to work, it has to be one that we can get other countries to buy into so that we have a system of interlocking claims, just as we do today for this, the deep, deep seabed floor. For that to work, it would have to be a system that recognizes, look, you've surveyed that object. Maybe you've launched a mission to that object. And what the mining claim does is prevent someone else from, let us say, launching another mission 
in the intervening period to go mine that very same object. That's the sort of mining claim system that I think could be useful. It's not going to let you raise capital just based on the, the, the prospect of that, but it will defend your claim against interference, right? That's the kind of distinction that lawyers would draw here. So let me just close by saying that um, I, again, find the book very inspiring. I think it's an even better book than The Case for Mars, precisely because it's not so fixed on one destination. And I think, uh, Dr. Zubner, if I may, I think your thinking has evolved in a more dynamist way. I think you are, in a way, less technocratic than you were in 2000. Uh, when, when did you write The Case for Mars? 96. 96, right? So we've seen more. We know that there are more uh, ways of doing things today. Um, for all those reasons, I would encourage everyone to read the book. It's a wonderful introduction to the state of the art, to what companies are doing today. But when you do that and you start thinking about, well, what are the next steps? And what is it you should do, especially those of you who work in policy in Washington? I would really urge you to remember that there are um, various areas of specialization and expertise. I would never presume to, to, to tell Dr. Zubrin about engineering or physics matters. I, that's not my specialty. Um, but there are also economists that you would probably want to consult with on the, um, the feasibility of the, the business models that he's describing. And there are lawyers who've spent their careers working through these hard issues of governance, right? Those are the, if you're going to get into this field, don't, don't just read the prophets who excite you with the, the vision of the future uh, and all the wonder that could be. You have to, to cast a wide net and understand that anyone who's engaged in prophecy necessarily falls prey to that sort of confirmation bias. And if you really want to dig in and you want to decide where you should devote your time and resources, you, you need to cast a wider net in, in your reading and in picking the fights that, that are most important. And to me, today, the fight that is most important is one that's not even mentioned in his book, which is that uh, at the same time that people on this side of the debate are talking about how we ought to have property rights in space so we can sell off pieces of land and so on, uh, there is a movement in the space law community underway right now to make it impossible to do even the things that I've described to you today as being recognized under, under existing international law for space. That is to say, there are people who want to revive the moon agreement, which essentially enforced a kind of socialism in space. Those are the fights that we should be having, right? Instead of us uh, fighting over what the Outer Space Treaty does and doesn't permit over what kind of property rights we should have, we ought to recognize that there are very real threats today that really could hold us back from doing the sorts of things that we all want to see happen. And those are the policy fights that we should be most focused on. So with that, I'll um, be happy to join Dr. Zuber in taking questions. Thank you. Okay, thank you both. So before we open up to questions from the audience, I do just want to start off the discussion with a uh, quick question for Robert, which also I think will allow him to respond a bit uh, to some of the things that Barron was saying. So Robert, in the book, uh, many of the projects that you discuss are long-term ambitious undertakings. What do you think are some advances that we might realistically expect to see within, say, the next five to 10 years? Well. Um, okay, now once again, um, I'm not engaged in, you know, prophecy. I mean, I'm not, you know, Greta Thunberg or something. I can see the future. Um, the, um, but I, I, I am trying to show possibilities. I am trying to show, in a general sense, how this open future could be created. Um, 
and uh, and for sure, not all of the ideas for business that I, I laid out will uh, turn out to work. I think some will. I don't know which ones. Um, you know, uh, and uh, same is true with a lot of terrestrial business ventures. You know, um, but look, um, I do believe that we will achieve fully reusable space launch, fully operational. Now, of course, the, the most likely candidate for that right now is Musk, but it might not be him. Musk is a risk taker, okay? His success is not fated. He has plenty of enemies. He skates close to the edge of the ice. Um, he could do something really stupid and get himself locked up on securities violations or something. I mean, you know, like, uh, if you follow him carefully, you be aware of some things of this sort. Uh, on the other hand, if he wasn't a risk taker, he wouldn't be getting as far as he has. Um, but what he has done is he has let the cats out of the bag. He has shown it could be done. If, if Musk skated off the ice tomorrow, uh, someone would be there to pick up the banner. And uh, if, if the Musk operation succeeds, uh, okay, he says he's going to have the Starship reach Earth orbit within six months. I don't think so. Gwyn Shotwell's a bit more conservative, says within a year. I doubt it. Two years, I think highly probable. Four years, for sure. And, the, uh, and in the larger scheme of things, does it really matter whether it's in six months or three years that they succeed in, in, in knocking the cost of space launch down to $500 a kilogram? And, um, you know, and it is a sure thing that that will open up whole new layers of space enterprise. Now, what, you know, it is, I mean, I say in the book, I think orbital research labs are better than orbital manufacturing because what they ship back down is data instead of product and it's easier to do. Um, and, but, you know, who knows? Uh, and, uh, but clearly things are opening up here. So yes, I do think we'll see uh, before 2030 fully reusable space launch. I do think that if we see fully reusable space launch before 2024, which I think is highly possible, um, we could see humans on Mars before 2030. Um, if uh, uh, I think that one of these fusion startups, and I can't tell you which one, but there's a whole raft of them. You know, there's eight of them in the book. They're popping up all over the place. Which one will will succeed? I don't know. Okay, but that's why I named a bunch. But uh, I, I think that we'll see fusion. Uh, ignition before 2030 as a result of, of this uh, um, burst of activity. Um, so I, I think we're about to see some remarkable stuff. And, um, and I think also, just to be clear, uh, I, I picked the example of fusion because it's one I'm very familiar with um, and think a lot about because I used to work in it. But the idea that a entrepreneurial space company should invent and achieve reusable space launch as an example that has ignited a fusion entrepreneurial revolution, I think that will have impacts in other fields that I don't follow, okay? Because, you know, Musk doesn't have nothing to do, he never talks about fusion, he's into solar energy, okay? So he, it was just the example that set that effect off. So there's gonna be other examples where people are gonna look at problems that they thought were intractable and say, maybe it can be done, you know? 
instead of if we could put a man on the moon, why can't we X? If we can have reusable space launch done by entrepreneurs, why can't we X? Thank you, all right. Just briefly say that in terms of prediction here, the, the way that I think about this is that uh, reusable space launch and launch costs are similar to broadband and to broadband speeds in terms of enabling uh, innovation across the ecosystem. Uh, and so just, just to be clear about my, my point here, I, I think the book is strongest when you describe the revolution in, uh, in launch and lowering of launch costs. And, and that's, that's a like saying, you know, broadband is, is being deployed. We have new technologies coming around. And then the important point is we don't know what the rest of the ecosystem uh, will look like. And that's where I just, uh, I just urge caution to people in predicting what, will, what it will look like, how fast it will develop. Some areas will develop much faster than we expect. Some things will come out of the blue. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to be a pessimist. I'm just urging uh, caution in predicting what the second degree effects of the underlying platform will be. Thank you. Uh, we don't have much time left, so to have as many questions uh, as possible, we're going to start the Q&A now. Uh, please wait to be called upon. We have microphones um, uh, waiting. Uh, please, when you are called upon, if you have one, state your name and affiliation at the beginning of your question, that would be most welcome. And please try to keep your questions as succinct as possible so we can get to as many of you as possible given our limited time. Let's start uh, with the gentleman in the blue shirt toward the front. Thanks, Joe Mascaro. Most recently with uh, Planet Labs, which was one of the CubeSat companies that you mentioned. Um, I was really intrigued by the fusion power example. My question is specific to uh, SpaceX and Blue's investment in methane fuels and in situ resource utilization on Mars. If you were to describe this technology terrestrially, it would effectively be carbon capture and sequestration. What kind of parallels do you see between those two technological atmospheric chemistry systems? Well, uh, okay. Uh, I became the original champion of methane oxygen propulsion because, first of all, it was the easiest propellant to make on Mars out of local materials. And it's also a pretty good uh, propellant combination for a number of technical reasons. And uh, so I became a champion of it. Uh, Musk then, because he wanted to use direct landing, direct return, uh, similarly brought it up. But it has numerous other advantages. It's the second highest exhaust velocity of any realistic chemical propellant. Uh, it's much more compact and easier to handle than hydrogen, oxygen. And if you're talking surface-to-surface -surface travel, it's the cheapest propellant combination there is. Okay, uh, Methane uh, on an energy basis is like one quarter the cost of, of kerosene or something like that. And, the, um, and that starts to matter when you're talking about transport. Now, carbon capture and sequestration, there's two ways to approach it. Okay, there's the way that the climate activists talk about, which we've got to sequester the carbon at all costs and will basically impose a tax on people to make them sequester their carbon. Uh, I don't think that will work. Uh, I think it's a regressive policy. I think there's productive ways to use carbon. Now, for instance, there's one way that the rate of plant growth on Earth has accelerated by 15% since 1985 because plants know how to use carbon productively, uh, and they do. Uh, but that's on land. In the ocean, 
Uh, no, because in the ocean, the limiting ingredient for plant growth, phytoplankton growth, is not CO2, it's trace elements like uh, iron. And I do mention in the book an experiment that was done by a technological entrepreneur named Russ George, where he did it uh, uh, funded by the Haida Indian tribe who were concerned about the salmon uh, 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 diminishing. They went out into the, 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 the north East Pacific, and they, 100 tons of iron sulfide they distributed in the ocean. They caused a massive phytoplankton bloom, and the number of salmon that came back tripled. To you, tripled, okay? And the, the, because there was plenty of food for the baby salmon a, out at sea. And, you know, uh, they were denounced by environmentalists because they're making people think that we don't need carbon taxes. Um, but, yeah. Um, and, you know, 60% of the surface of the earth is a desert known as the open ocean. 90% of the productivity of the ocean happens in 10% of the ocean, the continental shelves, upwelling areas, river deltas, places like this. Most of the vast ocean of the world, which is the majority of the world, is no uh, biological productivity at all. If you activated that, uh, even to a modest extent, you could take up all of our carbon emissions and you could sequester it in the form of fish. Okay, which I like. <laughs> Actually, three questions at a time now so that we can get to more people. Let's go with uh, the two gentlemen next to each other toward the back and uh, the gentleman in the tie across from them. And we'll do uh, three questions in a row. Also, if you're online, you can tweet a question with the hashtag SpaceFlightRevolution and we'll try to get to those questions as well. Please go. Uh, thank you, Dr. Zubin. Thank you, Mr. Zokai. I'm, I'm a United States presidential candidate from the United States Transhumanist Party. Uh, Johan Benzion is my name. And our, our organization, our little uh, policy club, we're really interested in uh, becoming a spacefaring civilization. To, uh, but uh, people who have written about this in our organization, also they're interested in things like uh, near-Earth industrialization. Um, you mentioned um, uh, Mr. Mr. Zok made, made ref passing reference to the... Uh, the expense of the Apollo program is pushing up to something like a trillion dollars for something it was a little bit like a publicity stunt. Um, what would you say, how would you say the um, would be best practices for uh, near-earth industrialization and uh, infrastructure and uh, using these res society's limited resources in the most responsible way towards uh, uh, becoming more outwardly bound? Okay, and the two other uh, questions before we get to answers. Oh, okay. Um, hi, I'm Dan Elton. I work at NIH. My question is for Dr. Zubrin. Uh, you mentioned that you don't like the argument of going, uh, sending humanity uh, off Earth to back up humanity. I was wondering, do you see something fundamentally wrong with that argument, or is it just because of PR concerns? And uh, because personally, I, I find that argument quite compelling, especially with uh, pandemic risks and other existential risks that we, we face. And uh, the third question, thank you. Yes, Tim. Thank you to you both. Uh, my name is Ross Hatley. I'm with the Space Policy Institute and the Office of Space Commerce. Um, my question is to both, I suppose. Um, there, Musk had the aha moment that we could potentially walk away from the Russian sources, retool this from the ground up. Um, CubeSats were, had an enabling technology of 
digital um, miniaturizations, et cetera. Was, is there something similar to that going on in the launch industry, that technology is now such that we are able to achieve the sorts of things that Musk woke up and said, let's try this? Or is it perhaps that it's a matter of structural incentives, institutions that has delayed what we're seeing now by years, decades, perhaps? Right. Why don't you answer the first one, and I'll take this, the next two. Yeah, well, I mean, it clearly has, right? The U.S. government has clearly uh, not been incentivized to, um, to buy in a way that would change the business model for launch services. Um, that could have happened earlier. That, that said, uh, it's also true that the buyers, uh, this is the chicken and egg problem that Dr. Zubrin describes, the buyers for launch services thus far have been cost insensitive because they've had very large, expensive satellites, and it hasn't really mattered that much. So it's not an accident that you see this, um, you see these developing hand in hand, that you see people building smaller, cheaper satellites at the same time that launch costs are developing. So that, that, is, that is taking off uh, for private re sector reasons as well. All right, let me uh, address the second question. Uh, why I find the uh, lifeboat or Elysium argument um, unappealing. Um, the, 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 uh, and it, it, it's not just, um, well, okay, uh, I know you're having a hard time, but don't worry, I'll survive. Um, you know, which is sort of a, uh, you know, the Kurds are expressing their opinion of that, uh, to our troops, uh, this week. Um, you know, see you around, fellas. Um, we're going where it's safe. But no, it, it is that it's fundamentally wrong. The idea is um, um, while there is a planet B, I also want to keep planet A. And, uh, the, uh, and by creating additional forms of, Western, uh, of, of human civilization, we strengthen its capacity. Um, you know, Europeans colonized North America and um, not to create a lifeboat for Western civilization, but to add to its strength as a dynamic force in human affairs, okay? And, um, you know, it wasn't an effort to evacuate Europe or to have a spare continent in case Europe uh, was destroyed. It was a, it added a dynamic new branch of human civilization that innovated in democracy and technology, and you know created steamboats and telegraphs and 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 electric light bulbs and centrally generated electrical power and aeroplanes and computers and and, and so forth. And the 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 idea is 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 not to have survivors. For when this civilization collapses, but to make this civilization much stronger so that it does not collapse. And that, not only that, that its rate of progress and its rate of achievement becomes much greater. Okay, so that's, that's my, my vision there. Okay, and um, so, you know, it's together to Mars than together with Mars. And uh, the first question was about uh, best practices for resource extraction uh, near Earth. Oh well, that was when I was trying to stick him. I, I think I think the question was more about uh, what how, what's the right amount for the government to spend, essentially, and how to justify government investment. Well, well the, the fellow from the first question uh, is a complicated question, but um, 
I mean, best practices in the sense we don't leave, want to leave a lot of orbital debris around, so as it makes uh, the, the Earth orbit a dangerous place for other spacecraft and things of this sort. Okay, so there are there's a need for regulation of that type, just as like we don't want to have unconstrained littering, as libertarian as many of us are. We do think that there should be trash cans and so forth. But the um, uh, uh, but you know. Um, well, I state my argument in the book that uh, uh, he, he countered, but I, I, I'll stick by it, that we do need private property rights in space. Uh, and therefore, we do need national sovereignties in space, because private property only exists in the presence of a government. You own your house because the police agree that you do. Otherwise, a gang of five strong men could throw you out of your house. Uh, and the the... And the idea that, I mean, I leave it general, but the idea of that if you survey an asteroid to a particular degree of detail that's specified in a law that you should be able to establish a claim there, say, good for 99 years, and that you as a prospector could make those claims and then sell those claims. There's plenty of people on Earth who've made money as prospectors who have had no capacity whatsoever to mine their claims. They just go around exploring and they discover uh, where the resources are and they sell the claim. And uh, that's specialization. And right now we don't have the technical capacity to actually mine asteroids. We do have the capacity to survey them. And that's why I said if we did create a patent office, and, and the reason why I call it a patent office, see, I'm an inventor, I got some patents, okay? And I can tell you stories about the US patent office, I've had plenty of the patent office, okay? But the patent office, the US patent office, established by Alexander Hamilton, has been one of the great progressive, and I don't mean the sense of, of, of Elizabeth Warren, I mean the sense of human progress, in, in the sense of Chelsea Follett's idea of progress, uh, uh, the, the institutions in the world, because you know, if you're a Finnish inventor and you invent something, a Finnish patent doesn't do you any good. But you can go to the U.S. patent office, you file a patent, and now your, your intellectual property is worth something. And you can finance your creativity that way by selling your patent, because it, it actually has value. Uh, it's the same thing with copyrights and so forth. And the, the, we, we do need to have private property rights. And I don't think the Outer Space Treaty should just be discarded because there are provisions in there against, for instance, the deployment of weapons of mass destruction in space that should be preserved. But there are provisions that should be amended. Although I do not believe that a patent office violates the Outer Space Treaty any more than you know, the US patent office does not represent a claim by the United States to the universe of ideas. It it represents a place that people can monetize. Given ideas. our limited time, I think we do uh, have to let Baron respond to that very briefly, given... Uh, really quickly. I mean, this is the equivalent of me telling you how a nuclear fusion reactor ought to work. Um, I mean, I, th these are hard legal issues. And so when people use the term property rights, they mean a bunch of different things. The first thing he's talking about isn't property rights at all. It's land grants. It's the kind of land grants that the U.S. government gave to the railroads, right? That's completely different from you own your house and nobody can take it from you. 
you own your house and nobody can take it from you is already in the Outer Space Treaty. You build an object, you build a facility, you build a vehicle, you own those. You can't be interfered with. We have existing precedent that says you own the stuff that you extract. Those are the critical property rights that you need in space. I'm perfectly happy to talk about a system of mining claims, as we discussed, that builds upon that, but it's never gonna be the saleable, um, you know, you can't really do anything about it, but you can sell it off to raise money system that many people want. Those are fundamentally different, and we can have a legal discussion about that in the uh, break, if you like. Okay, sounds good. So some healthy disagreement on the details of property rights in space. Uh, let's take uh, three more questions in a row, like last time. Uh, let's go with, um, uh, the gentleman uh, in the sweater, uh, then the one in front in blue, and the gentleman in the middle. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for your uh, presentations. Very interesting. Uh, my name is John. I'm from the Center for the National Interest. Um, and I was going to direct this question at Mr. Skozoka. Sorry, I should did we pronounce that? Um, I'll so, leave the Z's to him. Yes. <laughs> uh, so regarding uh, space law, I'm curious to know how you would prevent the extension of the nation state into space, um, partly because nation states have a way of being very, uh, yep. well, nation state-y uh, <laughs> with all of their military technology, but also concerns with dual-use objects. So for instance, uh, the same kind of things you'd use to mine or to repair can also be used for military purposes. Yep. And I'm just wondering how you'd prevent uh, that. So re really quickly. Oh, oh sorry, 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 I forgot. Uh, next. Huh? Hi, Andrew Follett, Club for Growth. Uh, Dr. Zubrian, what's the best example of NASA's random mode versus purpose-driven mode that does not involve the James Webb Space Telescope? Okay, uh, and is gentleman in the middle, in the black blazer. Hi, my name is Brandon. I work with the Atlantic Council. And uh, my question is, so you guys have talked a little bit about coordination problems when it comes with asteroid mining. What other sort of governance, coordination, or security problems do you think are the most important for our long-term future? Thank you. Okay, so the first question was to you. It's your book. Why don't you um, respond oh. to that? All right, purpose-driven versus um, uh, vendor-driven. Uh, well... Okay, look, uh, last year NASA launched the Test Space Telescope. It's a planet finder. They launched it on a Falcon 9. They could have launched it on a Delta IV. The launch would have cost four times as much, but it would have launched it. They chose to launch it on a Falcon 9. Now, that may seem like a no-brainer. I would argue that it does take a brain to choose to the, <laughs> the better launcher. But, okay, it's not a genius act. But here we go. Um, with uh, talking about doing uh, this uh, Artemis initiative with the SLS at a billion dollars a launch instead of a Starship at a hundred million a launch, okay? And and not only that, the Artemis doesn't just require the SLS. It also building the lunar orbit gateway. I call it the lunar orbit toll booth. Uh, it is they're talking about building a space station in lunar orbit. Now, here they are supposedly committed to getting people on the moon by 2024. Could you imagine if someone had come up to NASA in 1964 and say, you want to get on the moon by 1969, build a lunar orbiting space station? Okay, the, the, it, it, it's a ridiculous proposition. It is doing something in order to spend money. It does not um, add capability to the system. It's a liability added to the system. It will cost a lot to build. It'll cost a lot to maintain. It adds a delta, uh, propulsion requirements to the mission. It adds timing requirements to the mission. It's a disaster. That's a uh, vendor-driven program, okay? But using the most cost-effective technology available to um, 
achieve a definite end, that, that is purpose-driven. And yeah, there's imperfections in all NASA programs, but nevertheless, a lot of them have been primarily driven by a, a particular purpose. The science directorate wanted to save $200 million so they could spend it on telescopes instead of on uh, an excessively costly launch. Okay, so uh, just to answer your question. So what I, what I meant when I said uh, that the Outer Space Treaty um, stops the extension of the nation state into space. Uh, it's, it's pretty complicated actually, so let me just try to simplify it. So what, what it actually says is that um, it just changes the way that sovereignty works. So sovereignty in space is extended over persons and, uh, and activities rather than over territory. So uh, if you launch from the United States, you're a US person, you launch uh, that, you're, the US government regulates what happens on your vehicle. US law applies. You murder someone in the vehicle. You get tried in federal court. You know, it's just these are, in that sense, the nation state is, is operating in space. What it can't do is claim uh, the moon or a big chunk of the moon, right? That's the fundamental distinction. I think that's, that's actually exactly the right approach. And, and it creates these, it does create some difficult questions of governance, like we're going to have uh, an international tribunal system. This is where I get to, to do a little prophecy to mediate claims because we're gonna have more complicated scenarios in the future than we've had under the International Space Station Agreement where we've just had a contractual deal by which we say, okay, there's a Russian law in one module and European law in another module and so on. That, that is a big long-term project. And the immediate-term project, uh, this is what I told Congress in 2015, um, what we really need, we talked about the property rights that exist in space, the most important thing is actually tort law. It's what does non-interference actually mean? How far away um, from one other object uh, is your interference considered to be significant if you land your vehicle near someone's telescope, that might be a different answer from landing their ve your vehicle near their base. Those are the questions that ultimately uh, real uh, space law on the ground is going to uh, depend upon. And, and this is actually a pretty good time to start thinking not about rules and regulations, but about standards and how the international arbitration process works. And that's what I would like to, uh, the Congress to be working on. Uh, uh, Dr. Zuber mentioned orbital debris. That's also another area where we actually really could have a, uh, a market-driven system today um, where the market doesn't work because one of the problems in the Outer Space Treaty is that you are responsible for your object forever and nobody else can touch it without your consent. And there's a lot of stuff up in Earth uh, orbit uh, that is uh, maybe belongs to the Russians, but you don't really know and you don't really have a right to remove it. Uh, my colleague Jim Dunstan has written a lot about this, about developing a law of salvage consistent with the Outer Space Treaty to allow people to remove objects that are hazards to navigation without necessarily getting consent of the original party. Those are the kinds of things we should be working on today. Okay, so just, I don't wanna go on forever, but you can't develop land unless you own the land, okay? And so we do have to have the ability to own land or own things that are not exactly land like mining rights, which is, uh, you know, you can, someone can own the surface rights, someone can own the mining rights, but yes. But anyway, what is, uh, your question was about national security. Uh, so like, what are the biggest uh, coordination governance or security problems that could, like, prevent us from being able to maximize our, uh, our ability to capitalize on problems? Uh, for those online who cannot hear, since he doesn't have a microphone, it's about coordination problems with governance uh, in space. Well, okay. Um, we do want to avoid conflict in space, for sure. 
but the uh, there's no question that space is a critical theater of military operations, uh, Earth orbital space. Uh, the uh, you know, uh, and I, I think this is uh, very much uh, not fully understood because you know. We've had space assets that matter uh, in a military sense for 30 years or so, but all the wars we fought have been against people who we would have beaten anyway without them. Uh, so it seems like a frill. Okay, we got GPS, big deal. We could have beaten Saddam Hussein without the GPS. Okay, but uh, if you want to understand how important space assets are, think of World War II where you're fighting against an opponent with comparable capabilities, and imagine if the Axis had had reconnaissance satellites, and we didn't, okay? Then the U-boats would have wiped out the, the North Atlantic, and we would have lost the Battle of Midway to the Japanese, and the, 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 the you know, in other words, the Axis would have won World War II if they had had reconnaissance satellites, which is just one, a component of current uh, space military power. There's communications, there's GPS targeting of, of munitions and so forth. And if one side or the other uh, was to gain space supremacy, that is exclusive control of uh, the ability to use space assets, that would be a decisive in a large-scale conventional war. So um, I don't know if the space force is an appropriate thing to do at this point. I think actually there's also, it's basically an org chart argument uh, because we had Space Command in the Air Force already and you can argue about whether they need a separate thing. But, uh, but clearly, that's going to happen and I think that it is, is fundamental to the security of the West, uh, well, if possible, to obtain the ability to get space supremacy and certainly to deny it um, to an adversary. And uh, so, you know, this is going to become increasingly important. Um, the, 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 you know, I, you know. All right, thank you. So we are at time. However, uh, during the reception, the conversation can continue. So first of all, thank you both. I was deeply fascinated by every second of this conversation. Uh, thank you to everyone in the audience, including online. Please be sure to pick up, again, a copy of the case for space, it will be for sale in the lobby. You may be able to get your copy signed. And uh, please enjoy our drinks reception. And please join me in giving a round of applause for our speakers. Thank you.